Hey folks, like I said on Monday, it's not that I skipped this week, but that I did another little talk show with Rob Morris of the More Freedom Foundation. Rob recently published a couple of videos dealing with loose talk among pundits nowadays about another American civil war, and I had last week's show on collapse, and we thought that they dovetailed enough to chat them out. In other news, I've got a piece up on the all, that's awl.com, about how Ancient Aliens of the History Channel is the most dangerous show on television, and that's worth checking out. I'll have that in the show notes. The September Patreon-exclusive news show is going up next week, or the last week in the month, and it's going to be well worth the cash. So if you're interested, or you know somebody who might be interested in slinging me 17 pesos to the dollar, head on over to patreon.com slash democracy and check out what we've got going on there. In other Patreon news, I don't know if everybody's aware, but a pretty serious earthquake went down south of Mexico City yesterday, and we're still pulling kids out of buildings and assessing the full extent of the damage. My folks, with much more means than I, are pretty much handling donations on the stateside, hurricane side of things, so this month's Patreon proceeds from SFD are headed to Mexican earthquake efforts. By the grace of God and you guys, I've got a little bit more disposable income than the folks unfortunate enough to be living in buildings that weren't quite quake-proof, and even though I was in Mexico City a couple of days ago, didn't have to be in the zone myself yesterday. Ratings on iTunes and a couple of other apps are up since the last time I mentioned it, but remember that if you haven't, it's still your job and yours alone to go forth and rate. It helps me, indirectly it kind of helps you, and it keeps SFD on the air. Alright, enough's enough. I'm John Coombs, he's Rob Morris, we're talking about the end of the world, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. Not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able yes, to... our progress has been uneven. The work of democracy has always been hard. It's always been contentious. Sometimes it's been bloody. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
So I decided we should do this based on not one of your longer form shows, but a shorter form bit that you did on Collapse, which was sort of, I think, exquisitely timed to the hurricane, uh, the hurricane issues we were having just last week, talking about the possibility of environmental collapse in the United States. I was wondering if you wanted to just jog about that for a minute or two. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, the basic thesis of that show is that, you know, climate change is coming. Maybe not all of our listeners are 100% in agreement with that, at least in the United States, but big weather is coming. And while something like Hurricane Harvey isn't going to bring down the government of the United States, failure over the last half century to invest in our own infrastructure and a failure of the Trump administration to invest in human infrastructure and in certain measures, like the way they're getting rid of flood resistant regulations for new bridges and highways, they're actively trying to undermine infrastructure that could contend with the changes that are coming with climate change. And the show dealt with the possibility of a kind of a cascade of weather related events and the failure of infrastructure and what that could mean for larger regional or national questions in the United States. I think, I think, you've, I think you've pitched that in an uh, anti-Trump way that I certainly agree with, but that, I, that perhaps some of our listeners might not. But I think that the concern you raise, just sort of infrastructure generally, is a huge issue. And I think there's bipartisan concern, but there doesn't ever seem to be any bipartisan action which is kind of interesting. We've got more important things to do, like bomb weddings in the Middle East, that sort of thing. Always more important, Rob. Yeah, got to focus, got to focus on that kind of thing. Uh, so to, uh, actually, to sort of draw it back a bit, we're, we're talking about how the world ends today. And I'd, I'd like to apologize. This is on me, not on John. As, as a typical, typical American, we've titled it How the World Ends, but we'll probably be focusing mostly on the United States and sort of plausible plausible ends. But on the topic of how the world ends, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't address Korea, uh, which is a uh, something that we've certainly been hearing a lot over the past couple of weeks. And I'll confess that even I have stressed out about a bit and, and, and flipped out about a bit. But I, I, I kind of like the read that you had on this, John. So what, what do you think the, the chances, John, of, of nuclear apocalypse due to North Korea are? Barring action on our side? Uh, none. I think, yeah. I think the chances are none. I think a big old goose egg. Yeah. Um, president after president, especially conservative presidents, at least, well, at least talking about Donald Trump and George W. Bush, have used North Korea as kind of a, a way to rally the troops here in the United States. You know, you're tough on North Korea and people like that. Mm -hmm. But the fact of it is, is that North Korea is not going to use the bomb on anybody. You know, we don't like to talk about Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il and, and the entire family as rational actors, right? Because they appear to us as irrational actors in the international scene. But at least on one very important point, they are incredibly rational actors. And that's in terms of self-preservation, the preservation of themselves at the top of their regime. And the one thing they could do that would remove any chance of them uh, living through the subsequent events is attacking South Korea or using the bomb. And every time a U.S. president gets up and, and, and lets loose with the tough rhetoric, the only people they're actually helping are the leaders in North Korea because it rallies their base for them. Mm -hmm. And the only international actor that has any leverage with North Korea is China. Mm. And if we want to deal with North Korea, we need to deal with China. But when we fire off fiery rhetoric about, about communist parties or destroying the world, we hurt our chances at working with the Chinese because they can't be seen to respond to our insane rhetoric. So every time Donald Trump goes up in front of the UN, like he did uh, very recently, uh, and says insane stuff about North Korea, he's actively hurting any possibility of working with them, of, of drawing down on their nuclear program, of and, taking that family out of power. 
And when you say very recently, we mean uh, an hour ago. Actually, you know, Donald Trump speaking at the UN, I think that dovetails in kind of interesting ways with uh, the theme of the end of the world. Something you said that I think really, I think is really vital and applies not just to North Korea. Uh, I'll be honest, I have, I have my suspicions about North Korea as rational actors. I mean, there's just such a bone deep insanity to that regime. But I do agree that if nothing else, they're concerned with their self-preservation and, and they know that using a nuclear missile or shelling Seoul are, are pretty much the, the, the end game for their regime. So unless in, in somehow another actor forces that, it's, it's simply, simply not going to happen. But what's interesting is just the, the, the inability to see other actors on the world stage as rational. And I uh, think with North Korea, that, that, that's some, somehow understandable, but just the ways that we view Iran or Russia, and it's just it, it's in, in, impossible to imagine that they might have concerns. And we saw that uh, in, this, in this speech that Trump just gave. Did not watch it myself. My understanding is that he addressed Iran once again and uh, issued his threat to essentially unilaterally blow up the Iran nuclear deal, which is, which is kind of extraordinary because what he's doing there is promising to create another North Korea, to create another permanent issue. The Iran nuclear deal, you can argue back and forth about what it did and did not do, but it did, at least for the next decade or so, stave off that eventuality of Iran having a nuclear weapon. And by throwing that deal out in return for essentially nothing, Trump makes another North Korea more likely. Yeah, and the, so this is this is kind of a side issue, but the thing that people might not realize about Iran is that in addition to oil, its other great natural resources actually uranium. It's got a ton of uranium under the ground. Um, really? So it has yeah, it has this very natural interest in developing some sort of program to do something with that uranium. So obviously there was a time when the Iranian regime did have a very vested interest in developing a bomb. But any Iranian regime is going to have an interest in some sort of nuclear program. And what was great about the nuclear deal is it allowed them to make use of the uranium under the ground, you know, their real interest, while restricting their ability to do anything violent with it. Mm. Which, you know, my feeling, I don't think they have an interest in that anyway. But well, but that's, that's also the, I think that most of the case for scrapping the nuclear deal, most of the case for, oh, we got to go after these guys, is the idea that, that they're crazy. They'll just trot out. I think I do think the the supreme leader had uh, had one had a couple really bad quotes at some point over the what twenty years he's been in power. But you know they'll they'll just trot out stuff from Ahmadinejad. You know Ahmadinejad denying the Holocaust or threatening whatever he threatened, and it's it's just like this guy hasn't been in power for for years at this point. And it's and, also and, sorry, good, good, good. And yeah, it's just an inability to see the difference between rhetoric and like actual possibility. I mean, the, the, the Iran regime, I do not want the Iran regime to have a nuclear weapon. And I think that the Iran deal is a great step towards that. Uh, but if the, Iran re the Iranian regime had a nuclear weapon, they are not going to unilaterally nuke Israel because they are not going to unilaterally nuke the Middle East. They're not going to nuke their own region. Uh, it's just uh, these these quite basic facts that, that that people simply don't don't focus on. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, when, every time we try to characterize the Iranian regime as, like you said, an irrational international actor, what we look at are stuff from either a past president, Ahmadinejad, Ahmadinejad 
or the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, right? And the thing that we like to ignore or that we like to never learn at all is that the Iranian system has presidents, which are heads of government, and then it has a head of state, which is the supreme leader. And the guys that actually run things that are going on in the government day to day are the presidents. So Mm -hmm. taking what Ahmadinejad has said in the past as an indicator of policy in the present is like looking 20 years down the road at the crazy stuff Donald Trump has said in the past as indicating what's going to happen for that president 20 years in the future in the United States. Hmm. It's nutty. There's an interesting comment here. Uh, It says, Iran needs nukes, otherwise the USA will invade Iran. And, you know, it it, it would be, I'd, I'd love to dispute that statement, but it's pretty easy to see why Iran would believe that at this point. You look at the fate of Gaddafi, you look at uh, the way that Donald Trump is sort of beclowning himself over the North Korea issue right now. You know, Trump can say anything he wants, but he can't really do anything about North Korea. And Iran would desperately like to be in that situation. Yeah. Under, under past presidents where, where it seemed like the world was willing to open up a little bit more, you know, they could, they could sideline that concern. But uh, I, I, I would think that Trump would make them more likely to want a nuclear bomb. Yeah, I mean, at least under the past two Republican administrations, people in the Republican establishment, not even crazy right-wing hardliners, people like John McCain have consistently floated the idea of invading Iran. And usually without any immediate provocation on the part of the Iranians. I mean, it's just this perennial insane plan that comes out of the Republican Party. And when you get people like Donald Trump oh, oh, in oh, the oh, White oh. House, well, it starts to look... Not just, the, not just the Republican Party. I mean, Clinton's very quite, quite anti-Iran. You've got plenty, you've got plenty of hawks in the, the Democratic Party. Let's not... Uh, let's well, not... fair enough. But the, the point stands that you get somebody crazy enough in the White House, and from the Iranian perspective, it looks not at all unlikely that the U.S. might make some moves towards their borders, given that U.S. troops, as we keep stressing in these shows, <laughs> sorry, on the eastern and western borders of Iran, in Iraq, yeah. and in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, it's as, 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 if, as if they had a large presence in both Canada and Mexico. Exactly, exactly. So and I, I, the, last, the last point I want to make here, which I, again, I make in every one of these shows, is that there's this historical dynamic between opposed countries, opposed regimes, that hardliners tend to reinforce each other's positions. So the example that I always use is Fidel Castro in Cuba and successive American regimes in Washington. Mm -hmm. And what happens is every time a U.S. president doubles down on the embargo, what he does is he makes Fidel stronger. And Mm -hmm. then Fidel uses that to say, Americans are the great enemy. We have to oppose them. We're in a perpetual war. This is part of the ongoing revolution. And then Mm -hmm. the American hardliners, the Cubans in Miami, who go up to Washington to lobby, their position is strengthened because of the stuff that Fidel says in Cuba or in front of the UN. And the same thing is operative right now in the United States and in Iran. The Iranian regime has a very conservative head of state, which is the the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, and it has a moderate liberalizing president who's head of government, which is Rouhani, Hassan Rouhani. Mm -hmm. And every time we say crazy stuff about Iran, we strengthen Khamenei and the hardliners, and we undermine the position of the reforming current government. Yeah, it's 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 quite extraordinary. Well, I was ju- I did watch the tail end of Trump's speech at the UN just uh, just an hour ago, and it was just fascinating. His he went through the evils of he went through the evils of Iran. He went through the evils of North Korea, and then he went through the evils of Venezuela at great length. And it was just like this is such a gift to uh, Maduro. Maduro is that is that how we yeah Maduro. 
Yes, yeah, such a gift to Maduro, the, uh, uh, currently holding power in Venezuela. It's you know the guy is the guy is very very shaky, and Trump has chosen to give him the best propaganda victory imaginable in in his sort of consistent over the top rhetoric. And in, in the UN speech, he he was. He was careful not to go after Maduro, not to go after, but to just go after socialism entirely. So he's not just, not just saying that the United States is against Maduro. It's it's against the entire system of government that Venezuela has had for the past fifteen years. So he basically just 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 handed a whole bunch of allies to Maduro on a plate. All right. Do we want to change gears and start talking about our actual our actual shows? Yeah. We're originally going to address here. Do that. Do you want to talk a little bit about what your show was about? Sure. Uh, so I mostly there was a one New Yorker article in particular, and honestly, a few panicked Facebook posts just among my groups of Facebook friends talking about the prospect of a civil war in the United States. I think it is dramatic. It is pretty extraordinarily irresponsible that the New Yorker ran with an article that talked about the possibility of a new U.S. civil war. It was a possibility. Like the L.A. Times ran a story with that that sort of clickbaity headline and then did sort of what I did with my my videos saying, no, no, this is ridiculous. But it, it's an idea that's out there. Um, I think it's very much a part of the rhetoric of people on, yeah, I'd say predominantly on the right. This idea that, oh, we're going to have to get our guns and head for the hills. And extraordinarily, it's actually continued in the Trump administration, this idea that a civil war is coming. Just to be fair to The New Yorker, because I like The New Yorker a lot, the title of this article is, Is America Headed for a New Kind of Civil War? Question mark. And the impetus is that Foreign Policy, I guess, Foreign Policy magazine consulted a bunch of, you know, quote unquote, national security experts and received evaluations of the risk of a second civil war in the next 10 to 15 years, and they got percentages anywhere from 60 to 35. Or rather, quote, the sobering consensus was 35%, unquote. Uh, but that's not, I, I wouldn't say that that was the gist of the article. The fact that the article implied that there was even a 35% chance and, and sort of, it, there was a, a, a variety of somewhat ridiculous statements in that article. Do not have them at my fingertips at this moment, but I believe there was sort of, I think there was one in particular that I did run with that, that sort of, well, if you look at it now, the red state, blue state breakdown looks very similar to what existed during the Civil War in 1860. I found the article to be quite ridiculous, and I think that any piece of media that says, that poses the question, is a Civil War possible in the United States, ought to end with a resounding no. No, it's not. That's uh, fair enough. Uh, and and the New York article absolutely did not. Found that uh, I found that you know, fairly irresponsible. Um, and then I responded to it, and I think it gets to what I was talking about earlier. This idea, which I mean, it's common. Everybody in every historical era has been convinced that theirs was the worst and most challenging to live through, despite the fact that the empirical evidence contradicts that completely for most of the past two hundred and fifty years. Everyone's always been convinced of that, but that's sort of where this civil war, that's what this sort of civil war rhetoric is about, this sort of lack of historical consciousness and this lack of knowledge of the fact that things were so much worse, have been so much worse throughout the course of U.S. history. So I did the, I structured the video in two parts and I went through a few of these, these eras that were just so much worse. And I dealt, you know, briefly with the sort of Civil War period. I talked about sort of right-wing militancy in the 1990s and how I believe in many ways it was a lot more frightening 
then uh, the sort of Pepe the Frog set is today. Um, and then in the second video, I focused on the 1960s exclusively, which is something that I've been sort of wondering about for quite some time. And the way that we don't quite remember the 1960s, the way that they happened, they've sort of taken a rosy, I guess, through Hollywood and, and the, the inevitably improving memories of baby boomers of their youth. We, we don't remember the 1960s as as bad as it truly was. And what I tried to do with that second Civil War video was emphasize the fact that it was pretty yeah. bad. And uh, just, just to flesh that out a little bit, the stuff that Rob's referring to in the 60s that compares pretty favorably with today is that in the summer of 1967, there were 159 race riots in the United States. And the worst of those, which was the riot in Detroit, ended up with 43 dead, over a thousand injured, and the destruction of much of the inner city of Detroit at the hands of, well, largely National Guard troops, tanks in the city, 50 calibers being deployed to, to flush snipers out of buildings. I mean, it was, it was a serious time with serious civil disturbance that does not resemble what's going on right now. And it's, it's, and it's important to recognize that it was very, very widespread. I mean, you, that, that, that figure... And it's, it's extra. I didn't realize the figure was that high in 1967. Uh, in 1968, I believe it was when Martin Luther King was shot. That, I mean, I think literally hundreds of cities around the country yeah. went off. And the fact that in 1967, before that, that famous spark, the fact yeah, that. Yeah, this isn't out of my, off the top of my head, but out of my notes. Uh, known as the long, hot summer of 1967. Yeah. So over the course of years, the fact that you could talk about the long, hot summer, it was, it was for, for, for a set of years, it was an open question, how many cities, or at least, I don't want to emphasize and say cities, but the certain neighborhoods within how many cities would burn down over the course of that summer. And the fact that people talk about, generally the people who are talking about this are talking about, Black Lives Matter protests as if as if they somehow are on a similar level. I mean, Charlottesville was very disturbing. That was a very unpleasant thing to watch. Trump's reaction to it was even more unpleasant. But I mean, you gotta you gotta as as the nation's trauma goes, that ain't that ain't much. Yeah, and I mean, you know, nobody wants to downplay what happened in Charlottesville, especially the the protester who got run over, whose name is escaping me, which is unfortunate, but. Uh, Heather, um, yeah, Heather Heyer. Exactly, exactly. But something to note is, especially on the left right now, is the the level of peacefulness and organization in this protest. I mean, people on the right perhaps want to get down on Black Lives Matter, but what we've been looking at are protests, not widespread riots. You know, I mean, that's just a fact. Now, something something that I think you could look at, you know, now that, since we're supposed to be talking about collapse and the and the end of America as we know it. Something that you could look at is what has been a greater willingness on the left recently to get involved in physical violence on the streets. I am not um, a fan of that. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great question. What, what's what's your uh, what's your attitude towards punching Nazis? Yeah. So you know, I come down on both sides of this, right? When somebody, so I don't know if for anybody who doesn't know, in Seattle yesterday, uh, a guy who was wearing uh, a Nazi party armband and was apparently harassing minorities on the streets got decked by a bystander. So I come down on both sides of this in that, you know, if somebody's wearing a Nazi armband, you're, you're in point of fact openly advocating the extermination of various races, right? That's what that armband means. And at that point, yeah, probably you deserve to get uh, hit in the face. And, and, we can, and we can talk about it. But so the, other, the thing about this that, that frightens me, maybe, I guess, is that when leftists get more willing to engage in violence on the streets, 
what happens is people on the right get more willing to engage in violence on the streets. And historically, that has never played out well for leftists, and especially in the United States, where people on the right are massively better armed and more interested in joining and stuff fr- like frankly, frankly, more numerous. Uh, in terms of people willing to engage in, in violence on the streets. Willing yeah, to absolutely. engage in violence. Gosh, when did we first start talking about this? So I, I don't know much about Antifa or what have you, which is just never really cared to look into it, but I'm not, I'm obviously not a fan of uh, organized violence of, of any kind. And I remember just watching this on my sort of Facebook role. Uh, when was it Richard Spencer? Is that his name? The, the white supremacist who yeah. got punched in Washington? I think, it, I think it was during the campaign, but it might've been, might've been during the inaugural. The yeah. First. And I, I think, you know, this is actually, this is exactly what we were talking about with, with Trump and Bush and even Obama's approach to, Okay, more Trump and Bush's approach to Iran. It's it's this this okay, we're gonna get tough, we're gonna get tough, and then they're gonna get tough. And it 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 helps the it helps the worst on either side. So I remember on my Facebook role when that Richard Spencer got got uh, got cracked in the face in Washington DC. That was around the time of the inauguration, is that right? Yeah, it was the it was the inaugural. I'll just look it up. I think it was the inaugural week in Washington DC. Richard Spencer is a white supremacist of some sort. Or would he call he, does he have some different formulation that's not as I, I don't know if he's a proud boy or, or, or whatever, but yes, a white supremacist. I don't I don't get into the demonology of, of alt right stuff much. And I think I kind of think of these guys as a sideshow. But the point at which they become less of a sideshow is when you when you endure when you give them the excuse and when you when you make their fantasies real. And I think that's exactly what it was. I mean, there was so much, oh, you know, so much glee. They, they, there was just a lot of, yeah, punch a Nazi. That'd be great. Let's punch some Nazis. Ha, 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 ha. And I, it's, I think that that definitely gave fuel to the fire to these, these uh, Unite the Right people. I mean, the, the idea that we're actually getting physically harmed uh, means that we need to arm up. We need to show up in Charlottesville with cardboard armor and guns and, and whatnot. It's a terrible, terrible cycle. Yes, obviously. Nazis are horrible people. Yes, it's 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 just mind-numbingly ignorant and offensive that people would uh, choose to associate themselves with these kinds of ideologies. But uh, they're not really the problem. I mean, the, the problem is the willingness of most, you know, good-thinking, you know, respectable people to sort of endorse largely racist policies and criminal justice and whatnot, yeah. to continue to endorse the fact that our uh, military goes around, uh, you know, is currently operating in six or seven countries to a high degree and you know probably hundred you know probably dozens more that's the real problem with the world not some dipshit who's figured out that he can get some social media followers by coming up with a new uh, new swing on, on racism so uh two things here one in a very serious vein and two in more of a collapse vein because i want to i want to try to focus in on really depressing setting stuff yes yeah, the world, you know, um, let's let's get back to the apocalypse. So uh, the first thing is that Antifa is a group. It, it comes from Europe, actually, where places like Germany have always had this sort of nascent neo-Nazi presence, right? Whether or not it's big. Uh, and the idea is that their impression of what went down in the 1930s in Germany is that the fascists won the battle of the streets. And that's part of why they came into power, that there wasn't anyone on the left to use organized violence against organized violence to prevent the coming but to power of fascist parties. But that's not um, true. Well, that's the problem, yeah. The problem isn't that the Nazis won the battle of the streets exactly, because there were organized forces on the left trying to fight that fight. The problem is that the fascist parties captured 
the forces of violence of the state. That is that, you know, if there was a street battle between the National Socialists in Germany and some other more democratic party, the police were already on the side of the National Socialists. I mean, that's why they lost the battle of the streets, because the police were already on one side. And in the United States right now, if you want to try to get the police to be even more anti-Black Lives Matter, even more anti-leftist, which they already are in many places, maybe not everywhere and not every policeman and all that stuff. But the way you're going to do that is start engaging in organized violence on the street. That's how you're going to turn the police against you. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I I, I think it's atrocious the way even even the, the sort of establishment right wing outlets like the National Review or whatnot, you know, I think it's atrocious the way that they sort of normalize right-wing idiocy, sort of far-right-wing idiocy and claim it's all about Antifa or run covers that say left-wing violence and stuff like that. But I find that atrocious, but but the fact is there is some left-wing violence to point to. And and it's it's a it's it doesn't help anybody, the sort of Antifa uh, stuff. Yeah. And it's now in a in a little more sensationalizing vein. So there's this uh, very old idea in sort of political science, right? That something that had, takes place in places like Yugoslavia or in the former Yugoslavia or in Iraq after the invasion, this idea that a society can have deeply held racial or, or religious prejudices, right? And that in times of crisis, these long simmering, you know, antipathies can boil over. And that's what, that's what results like in the Sunni and Shia civil war in Iraq or in the ethnic violence that happened in the former Yugoslavia, right? So I had a professor in college named Stephen King, not that Stephen King, but also that name, who wrote the new book on ethnic conflict, right? And his thesis, which pretty much bears out everywhere, is that it has nothing to do with long-held racial hatreds and stuff that, that boils for generations and generations. What happens is that you have a country or a locality that's fragmented in some way. You know, people are of different religions, people are of different races, people are of different, different politics, and a small group of motivated actors can start engaging in violence with one of the other groups, right? And what they do is as they shoot that other group, they say, we're shooting you because you're Muslim or we're shooting you because you're Shiite. And what happens to the larger Shiite or Muslim group is that they start to perceive themselves as under attack. So what happens is you can spark a large racial conflict through the efforts of a small determined group of violent actors, right? So if you get people on the left, people like Antifa, and you get people on the very farthest left, crazy people in Antifa, and they manage to kill like a couple of Nazis, right? They manage to kill a couple of Nazis. Even the leftists in general don't want to engage in street violence at all. Well, all of those guys who were sitting in Michigan and, you know, down on the border, all those Minutemen, all the guys who were involved in these, um, these pseudo-militia movements still, all those guys are then going to have the impetus to go out in the streets and start shooting leftists, right? Because now they're under attack. Exactly. And, and it, it's, uh, you know, it's the basic lessons of kindergarten that very few people seem to learn. I mean, it's, it's violence is not a good thing. Violence leads to more violence, leads to more violence. And despite being having a tremendously violent foreign policy, we've got a measure of domestic peace in the United States. Yeah. Last, last word on that is Rob and I talked a little bit yesterday setting up this show, and I think our consensus was uh, civil war, not likely. And the only way we can get to it is by determined action on our own side, you know. And, you know, I'm um, not saying I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm not saying, you know, it couldn't happen 100 years from now. Couldn't even happen 50 years from now. But at the current setup, I, I find it super, super freaking unlikely. 
actually, before we get away from this, just for everyone who's looking at the, the possibility of a civil war, I mean, where do you see that happening? Where do you see those lines being drawn? Who's what? What side is going to be? Yeah. Uh, and then there's there's also the fact that most sort of Trump supporters, make America great again types, aren't exactly going to be heading to the hills. And, you know, it's not, not exactly the Viet Cong here. And I don't want to get overly stereotypical, but, you know, they do skew older. They do skew towards the less healthy. Yeah, I mean, we're not, you, we're not, we're not, we're not dealing with really. And, and on the other side, I mean, Antifa, I mean, you know. I also don't want to get overly stereotypical with the sort of spoiled brat iPhone millennials, but that's not entirely inaccurate either. I mean, we were not we're not as violent as the United States can be as a culture. We we actually do a pretty good job of not killing each other. And the other, this is going to be a little bit of a digression here, but I had this I had this thought way back when, as as I was getting out of college, this idea about the the kind of the future history of the United States, right? And what I was looking at at the time was Occupy Wall Street, where you had this rigorously peaceful movement that was definitely too utopian you know trying to have a movement without leaders and everything was done by consensus or whatever but really a kind of a beautiful naive protest movement right that was in many cases brutally suppressed by the forces of the government you know kid kids kids with no weapons handcuffed getting sprayed in the face and tasered i mean just pretty awful looking stuff it was oakland in particular that was really bad right and there were it happened at Berkeley every time they had to clear one of those Occupy camps. I mean, it was it was it was gross and not well publicized nationally, like how, like how bad it got in some of those some of those clearouts. But so my my thought long term was that one any attempt on any group's part in the United States to mount any kind of resistance to the federal government is doomed from the very start. We were just talking about Detroit, where you know hundreds of people were armed and sniping at federal troops. Well, I mean, they just sent in tanks, man. Uh, are you sure that's the case in Detroit? Well, that's 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 the reporting from right. Detroit at the time. They seized over seven thousand long arms. People were getting sniped at. You know, who knows if it was a dozen or whatever. But the, I, the point I, I, being, the National Guard thought that there were thousands of people shooting at them, whereas it was quite possibly one or two. Yeah, quite possibly not that many. But the, the point being that the the force of the government of the United States is going to come down on any kind of actual resistance movement. You know, this this dream on the right that somehow the Second Amendment allowing people to buy AR-15s is going to allow them to, you know, fight against the oppressive force of the federal government is totally, totally oh, actually, delusional, right? I'm actually a believer in that, actually. <sighs> the the uh, Now, I do not believe that were the... Um, the full force of the U.S. government to come down on the, you know, hill militias of Wyoming. I do. I absolutely do not believe that the hill militias of Wyoming would come out on top. But that is leaving out sort of a central facet of modern warfare, was which is that all wars are media wars, um, and it, it's not. It, it's not that the fact that the U.S. public is armed means that they could actually legitimately take on platoons of the U.S. Marines. Of course, they couldn't. It's, it's an added barrier. It's an added governor on the U.S. government because it knows that things could get worse. In, 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 in actual U.S. government action against uh, U.S. citizens, any potential death there, be it on the government side or on the sides of the people that, but as long as these people are white people, that too is tremendously damaging to them. I think we saw that actually with Ruby Ridge. I researched Ruby Ridge a bit for this thing for the Civil War video that I did. And I mean, it was kind of mind blowing. I mean, it, you know, it was poorly run on the government's part. It was tragic that parts of this guy's family were killed, you know, terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah. But I mean, it was one or two people that got shot. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Ruby Ridge happens in Chicago every month. 
But my point is, this Ruby Ridge thing became such a, such a battle cry for the right and became so damaging to the Clinton administration and, of course, Waco as well, that it really did change the way things are handled. And there was that famous Oregon standoff. Well, yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the outcome of Ruby Ridge, that you have people out west doing incredibly illegal stuff and defending that by pointing guns at the federal government. Like, I'm not sure that's a positive outgrowth of the caution that the government has adopted after Ruby Ridge. I think it's, I don't think it's necessarily a horrible thing. I mean, I'm not obviously not a fan of those Oregon twats, but I do, I do believe that, because I think that's a very standard argument is that, oh God, you know, what, what, what's, what are some yahoos with, with handguns going to do against uh, the U.S. Marines? And of course, physically, absolutely nothing. I, I do think that having an armed populace acts as a governor on on the United States. And I, that's that's why I'm extremely advisedly a Second Amendment supporter. I think that, that I think that's actually true. But I'm sorry if that was a, too much of a digression. No, 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 no. It's all good. Um, all right. I don't know that I have anything else on, on this exactly. Shall we move on to your uh, your? Yeah, sure, 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 sure. So I gave I gave a brief precis of this at the beginning of the episode, but in case accelerationist is still hanging around in the chat, this is this is what he was kind of pushing for. But the basic the basic premise of the show is that for the in the United States for the last half century or so, we've been avoiding investment in infrastructure, and uh, certain measures being taken under Donald Trump are actively undermining infrastructure in the United States. First of which being getting rid of regulations that would have made new bridges and new highways more flood resistant. And at the same time, we're staring down the barrel of the next 100 years worth of climate change. You know, even if we stopped all carbon production in the entire world right now, we'd still have to deal with the all of the carbon that we'd released into the atmosphere previously. And it looks like we're going to get to two degrees centigrade warming whatever we do, which is going to entail incredibly large and drastic changes to the climate. So we're going to be looking at more and more extreme weather events and of the kind that we've never seen before, the way that we'd never seen a hurricane just stop and dump water down like it did over Houston with Harvey. And what I said in the show is there's this interesting dynamic where putting infrastructure in place allows everyone in a society to produce more. And the example I use in the show is in trucking. You know, if you have a trucking company in the 1940s before the interstate highway system is built, say you're producing 10 units of value, right? You know, you use country roads. They're not super direct, but they get where you're going. Well, Eisenhower comes in, he builds the interstate highway system, and now you can buy bigger trucks and with almost the same business, but with bigger trucks, you're producing 100 units of value or whatever, whatever augmentation on that original value is, right? And all of that value comes from the interstate highways because you can use bigger trucks and go more directly. Well, if that system fails, you know, if the interstate highway system somehow goes down all at once, then what you're stuck with is a bunch of big trucks you can't use uh, on roads that are indirect. And now you're producing drastically less value than you were before the infrastructure dis- existed at all. And this is way easier to see if you look at something like a dam. You know, you put a dam in place, you control flooding, and you generate power. And that's great. That's great for the whole community, right? But if that dam goes out, obviously the effects of a dam burst are way worse than not having a dam in the first place. That's, that's something I think about a lot. When people talk about the, as we're now sort of getting to a little bit in the live chat, when people talk about the possibility of sort of interstate war or whatnot, people just don't, don't quite realize how extraordinarily dangerous and, and apocalyptic that would be. And I'm not talking about nuclear weapons. Sure, nuclear weapons are, are, are uh, you know, horrible and those are very bad things, but 
the degree of reliance we have on things like satellite networks today. I mean, like the life we lead is extraordinarily fragile. And it wouldn't take a it wouldn't take a nuclear war to destroy that and cost the lives of millions. Yeah, he means he means uh, just <laughs> for anybody who can't see the live chat, he means wars between great powers, not wars between the states of the United States. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, no, but but Rob is correct, and it actually it has something to do with what what I talked about on my show about infrastructure. That is that the thing that worries me about U.S. infrastructure isn't that it's just going to age, right? You know, we all knew that was happening. Bridges have collapsed more in the in the, in the the past decades than they have before because they we're not maintaining them. But what, what's there's a confluence of things happening. Which so you're, is that, you're worried about uh, a Hurricane Harvey, a Hurricane Irma, and then two other things that, that actually create a cascading collapse. A cascading collapse because of failing infrastructure combined with the extreme weather of climate change. Exactly right, yeah. And I mean... Long term in my show, the kind of the kind of horrible or whatever future I imagine is there's going to come a point because when you destroy infrastructure, you're producing less than beforehand. Right. There's there's kind of a negative uh, return on investment if you don't maintain your infrastructure. So if there's this cascading collapse of different infrastructure structures in the United States because of extreme weather, there's going to become a point where we don't have enough money to put new infrastructure up. Right. And the thing that allows the highly organized, highly productive life that we lead in the United States is the infrastructure that we have, you know, the power, the highways, the bridges, everything that allows us to live the life we live depends on infrastructure. And when that starts going down, it's not like the United States is going to collapse, but we're going to start leading more localized and very different looking lives. I think you're, yeah. you're getting at something very interesting, and I really enjoyed the, the collapse uh, thing. I think the kind of cascading breakdown that you're talking about but it, it happens. It has happened. What was fascinating, I don't know if you would, I don't know where you would have been in 2003, but I was working in the Connecticut suburbs of New York City. And this was 2003. This was just a year or two after 9-11. I was in uh, seventh grade. Seventh grade. All right. Berkshire Middle School in, uh, in Michigan. Yeah. In Michigan. So, but I wonder if you were actually, because I don't, I think it made it to Ohio. It didn't make it to Michigan. But we were just sitting at work one day and the power goes out. Oh, yeah. No, we were part of the Great Blackout. Yeah. And it, it lasted about a day or something like that. And because of, I think it was a storm somewhere that knocked down one power line that went to the next, that blew out the next thing, that blew out the next thing. A solid, was it a solid third of the United States was without power for a full day? It was It was more than a, I think it was almost a whole weekend. Because I remember we played Axis and Allies and we had almost finished setting the game up by the time the power came back on. All right. Yeah, I, I just I, I, my my most distinct, distinct memory was having to drive in drive into the Bronx to pick up my father. He was working at the city at the time and had to you know he had managed to catch a shuttle out to the Bronx and then my brother and I had to drive down and pick him up. Uh, it was it's actually kind of heartening because in sort of New York City lore, there's the Great Blackout of 1977 where everybody just went apeshit and did a whole bunch of looting. But two years after 9-11, uh, New York did not do that. Anyway, I, I digress. So those sorts of cascading collapses are possible. But I, I, I think that unless we truly, unless we go the full Roland Emmerich and uh, have <laughs> sort of, remember that day after tomorrow film where people are out running snowstorms and stuff? Um, unless we have, you know, a true, true climactic apocalypse that is called for in nobody's models. I don't think we're going to really outrace the capacity of of people to sort of rebuild. What's kind of interesting though is we don't have a centralized system. I think that 
grid, the one thing that is going to change over the next 10, 15 years for sure is the grid because they have to. Uh, and I think things are actually going to get a little more distributed, which is better. But we don't, what I found fascinating about this Harvey thing was contrasting Houston to New Orleans. And I think what we could see, especially in the context of places like Louisiana or certain areas, less affluent areas of Southern Florida, is a differential collapse, which is kind of, kind of horrifying in a way, and all, but you know, also morbidly interesting. I think the current, I haven't Googled it recently, but I think the current death toll in Houston stands at about 70. In Katrina, it was well over a thousand. And it's, it's basically the difference between this, and I think Houston is very likely to make a speedy recovery. And the difference between this is Houston is a charging dynamic, economically viable city, whereas New Orleans is not. Louisiana is not. Texas is a rich state. Louisiana is not. And in a lot of ways, New Orleans has not recovered from Katrina. I don't have it at my fingertips. I think that more of Houston was probably underwater than New Orleans, just because there is a lot more of Houston than there is of New Orleans. And the, the, the body count was much lower, and they're likely to recover quickly because they have economic resources that Louisiana does not. And I think that's kind of interesting. I, I think the idea of a spiraling nationwide collapse is very unlikely because we, the United States is a distributed system. But I think that sort of differential collapse. What I want to be clear about is, I, I, you know, I'm not thinking about a, an ongoing collapse or a cascade of collapses that result in like the, the downfall of the U.S. government, right? This this phrase that I kept that I really wanted to make poetic in the show, and I'm not sure I, I not sure I got it done was I, I saw these snow fences going out west, right? Because I recently took a trip out to the western United States. Can you just describe that again, like what what briefly what those are? Yeah. So once you get past about once you pass the Dakotas, you start seeing alongside of the interstate highways these snow fences, these kind of tilted at an angle, big wooden fences that are you know maybe a hundred yards away from the highway. And what they do is that when the blizzards come in the winter, the dunes accumulate against those fences instead of against the highway, and it keeps the roads open through the winter, except in a couple of very high mountain passes. And what's interesting about those fences is even though they look really simple, there's an incredibly large human infrastructure and a set of processes that go on below that. You know, people in every one of those states have to appropriate money for those fences. Somebody has to know how to build them, how to place them, all that stuff, right? And the image I wanted to create in this in this cascading decline in the United or this cascading collapse in the United States is not that there's going to be a point where we don't have roads anymore or a point where the government doesn't exist, but there's going to be a point where nobody puts up those snow fences anymore. So when you talk about a, a differential collapse or a differential recovery, even like well, what what we already saw in the wake of Katrina in New Orleans, where people in the Ninth Ward are still without housing, is I could see a United States in which the costs of infrastructure and the FEMA costs, like the way we're, that we're going to have to pay off a ton of people's mortgages in the Houston area because they didn't have flood insurance, right? There's going to come a point where maybe the people, you know, the elites that control the Congress and control appropriations for FEMA and disaster recovery might be less interested in rebuilding infrastructure for people in poorer areas. And the United States I see in this possible future is one that's just what we have now, but turned up to 11, you know? enclaves of the rich where infrastructure is great, you know, places like San Francisco or Silicon Valley, and enclaves of the huge mass of working poor, places like the Ninth Ward in New Orleans, where they're pretty much going to be left to fend for themselves, and the diminishing resources of the federal government are going to go to the areas that can pay for it. 
Yeah, I think I, I think there's some there's some plausibility to that. I, I am consider myself no, I don't really consider myself a libertarian anymore, but I definitely have I definitely want things to be more dis- distributed in terms of powers, powers of government, all of this, uh, even getting into physical stuff like distribution, manufacturing. As I begin to finally start caring about environmentalism a bit, you know, it, it's just more distributed life is is better. But it, that is something that I think about a lot. It's like, okay, well, if we finally do manage to make meaningful change to Washington, D.C., which is definitely remains a priority of mine, I think it should be smaller, I think it should be better run, I think more decisions should be made locally. How do you avoid, you know, what happens to Mississippi that's largely dependent on subsidies from, from the federal government? What happens to, gosh, what happens to most of the, the south of the country uh, without the Army Corps of Engineers? I mean, they, these, are, these are very interesting, interesting questions. Yeah. So this, I'm going I'm to get maybe a little bit more political than Rob would like, but, and, and you should respond after I do this. This is going to be a whole spiel. But, so I see, I see a couple of forces at work in the U.S. that, you know, without painting a particular picture of collapse or whatever, that I see is working together and against us. So I think I think in the first place, you've got over the past couple of decades, the radicalization of media on the right and the effort of that media to propagandize the conservative base. I think we see that in places like Breitbart and places like Fox News and talk radio. I think that's just as a fact going on. The effect of that that I want to get into right now is is this determined effort to obscure the fact that climate change is happening. Right. There's there's one group of people in the whole world that doesn't believe that climate change is happening. And it's American conservatives. You know, I live in Mexico, and even the most conservative Mexicans have no doubt that climate change is happening. It just doesn't happen elsewhere in the world. But in the U.S. it does, and what it does is it creates a blockade against any really effective sweeping measures to confront what's going to be happening to us. And, you know, for almost any other disaster that's ever faced us in the history of man, that would be okay. You know, there's time to come to confront what's going on, right? But in the next century in the world, and in the United States in particular, We're going to see rising water on the coasts, which affects some of our most prosperous and productive areas. We're going to see extremes of drought and rain. So maybe cities out in the West aren't going to run out of water, but we get a huge amount of our agricultural produce from California, and that's just going to have to change, you know? They're not going to have enough water to produce the way that they do right now. We're going to have difficulties with agriculture. We're going to see the rise of resource conflict in the developing world because of exactly the same issues that we're going to face in the United States. And we're going to see the entrance of tropical disease into the southern United States, stuff like dengue and the other hemorrhagic fevers, as Aedes aegypti and the other mosquitoes have the ability to move further up and the parasites that live in them can survive further up in the United States. So the thing about all those things is all of those things, even though I'm in total agreement that the thing we need are more distributed electric grids and more distributed infrastructure, right? But the thing about all those things is that they need the redistributive power of the federal government to work against them. So when you talk about Mississippi gets more money from outside than it gets from inside, absolutely true. And I don't want to abandon those people in Mississippi, but what they need is the ability of the federal government to take the tax base of the entire country and to turn that into disaster relief aid, into infrastructure aid. You talk about stuff like tropical disease, you need the CDC. You just can't do that on a state-by-state basis. And so what's happening is that because I think of the propagandization <laughs> propagandization of the base of the conservative right in the United States is going to prevent any large national action on these issues that are very much going to affect the whole nation very soon. So yeah, and I think I think it's 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 extraordinary. So I spend a lot of time with right-wing media and I do agree that the there's a real problem with right-wing media, but I would also say there's a problem with all media. I know you're specifically aiming at the climate change issue. Um, I, you know, I, I 
certainly believe in climate change. I'm not as on board with the story of catastrophe that you've that you've just just described. I think that those are all potential. I think I, I think they're, they're very possible, and it could very well be direct to directly connected to climate change. But I, it's just the the willingness of people to take this as an article of faith that this is what's going to happen. This is this is this is science. This is proven without actually having that knowledge themselves. I mean, I've spoken to a number of engineers, and, and they, obviously every scientist I know, every person I know with an engineering background absolutely insists that climate change is real. There's, there's no question. Um, I don't have that scientific background. I have been completely convinced that, that climate change is real. But what's interesting is when you get in the weeds with people about sort of IPCC claims and, and whatnot, is there's there's tremendous amount of dispute. You know, is you know, is the world going to fall apart if we don't if we go over two degrees? Are we likely to go over? I mean, there's all of this is very much up in the air. And I agree completely that those that people who still in 2017 are stumbling around going climate change hoax, raw. It's all a big joke. It's a laugh. Well, I think the current line is that it's a plot of the Chinese now. Yes, the plot of the well, I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't think Trump has tweeted that anytime recently. But yeah, those people are uh, are a fucking menace. And, uh, but, well, so, and and I can absolutely agree, like the fact that what's happening with the EPA right now, where they're, was it the, you know, is the EPA or the DOE, where they're basically saying don't apply for research grants with something that says climate change in the abstract because you won't get it funded. I mean, that, that is the EPA. Yeah, the EPA. Like that is, that is outrageous. That, 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 it's extraordinary to me in 2017 that you can be against research and climate change. That is, so yeah, so that, that, that shit. That shit is evil, but I'm not. I'm not completely on board with the tale of of death and destruction that is meant to be imminent. So, I get what you're saying. I mean, my my feeling is that the evidence that things are going to be bad is pretty strong. But I could I could agree that you know we don't know, right? We I mean, my impression is we know that things are going to be bad, but with weather, which is the immediate output of climate change, you know, things are variable, right? You know, weather is weather is chaotic. It's hard to predict that stuff, but the thing I always bring up in this in this kind of discussion is what are the things that we want to do to combat climate change, right? We want to create like really strong, safe infrastructure. We want to make sure that cities can deal with rising waters. You know, we want to create a really strong distributed electrical grid that doesn't depend on carbon. I mean, all the stuff we want to do is really positive, right? All the stuff, if we did everything, everything we wanted to do for climate change, the world would probably be better off. And two, if my side is right, right, you know, if, if, if I'm right that the world is going to be a total hellscape if we don't immediately start trying to deal with it, well, you know, on one side there's no risk or the risk of having a world that's probably like a little bit better. And on the other side, there's like a Mad Max hellscape. So why not do stuff right now and as much as we can? The thing is, I, uh, I, I think I've done all of one video out of the 270 I've done uh, on the topic of the environment and climate change, and it's called Why I Do Not Care About the Environment. And it's not that I do not care about the environment. It's not that I'm a climate change denier. It's just that I, I consider these sort of issues, for me personally, they're issues that I know more about, these issues of you know, potential interstate relations, you know, this, that, this, that, and the other thing. But I also do believe that these, these problems are well on the way to being solved. I'm a bit of an energy news junkie, and one of my freelance jobs for a while was doing oil industry analysis. And it is fascinating just watching the collapse of the coal industry, this, the speed with which developing countries are adopting ideas like electrification and wind and solar. I mean, I think this stuff is happening 
very, very quickly. And I do think that it'll happen in time. I think the answers are technological and I think they're, they're coming about. I think they might actually come about more quickly than we expect. There was a <laughs> this fantastic, uh, econ- I think it was one of the economists, but they had this one story about the horseshit problem, about how in like 1902, in every US city and, mo- and European cities as well, the entire world was like, what are we going to do? You had these cities that had, that had grown immensely throughout the Western world, throughout the United States. In the latter 19th century, cities had doubled, tripled, quadrupled in size. And you just had horse shit everywhere. It was tremendously unhealthy to have your roads filled with horse shit for obvious reasons. And it was a, it was a you know, what are we going to do? And by 1910, it was, how are we going to kill all these horses? Because everybody was driving. And I, 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 perhaps it's a little too Pollyanna-ish. Perhaps it's a little too overly optimistic to, to think that we're in the same situation now, but I, I really do think we, we are. I think that we're, um, I really do think we're about to reach a different energy era a lot more quickly than, uh, than we expect. Hey, and it's, you know, it's possible. I'd love for it to happen. But the unfortunate, I mean, the, the reason that climate change is the perfect, you know, the perfect scenario to like bring down humanity or at least human society as we know it is that it's hard to see the effects of it. Uh, it's really easy to see the benefits of carbon-based technologies. You know, the entire industrial revolution to today depends on carbon fuels. And then the effects of cutting down on carbon emissions are almost imperceptible, and we'd only see them 20 to 30 years in the future. It's the perfect thing to crush human nature, right? And the thing of it is, is that even though, even large energy companies, I don't know if anybody knows this, but places like BP and ExxonMobil are making huge investments in alternative fuels and alternative energy because they know that's what's coming. But the thing of it is, in those companies' stock prices, which Rob should know from doing energy industry analysis, in those companies' stock prices are already built in the carbon that they're going to take out of the ground in massive projects like the tar sands in Alberta and other stuff around the world. So unless those people just give up for their shareholders billions and billions and billions of dollars in investment in future carbon taken out of the ground, we're still looking at massive amounts uh, being put into the atmosphere, even if we're rapidly changing over to alternative fuels. I keep saying alternative fuels, alternative energies. But I think we're where I think we really are in, um, we're getting into a price environment where a lot of that stuff is going to stay in the ground. I mean, Canada's tar sands, they're still working them, but that's just not viable and it, at, at $50 a barrel. And there are all manner of projects that are slowing down and stopping. And I think we're, we're absolutely going to get, whether it's five years from now, 10 years from now, we'll get another brief spike in oil prices. But that's just going to accelerate this, this process even, even further. I think there's, there's probably one good spike left. And then we'll, we'll, you know, the Saudis will be pumping oil for plastics for another century or two. But the tar sands won't be viable. All manner of offshore more complicated offshore stuff is going to stop happening. And it's it's crazy. Even even the Saudis realize this is what's going to happen. They're sort of desperate flailing for different approaches. I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty optimistic. My mind has been kind of blown by how quickly things have changed. I mean, people love to say, well, solar, it's only 1, 1.5% of the power taken in the U.S. That's piddling. How can you be optimistic? It's like, okay, but look what it was eight years ago. It was zero or 0.00001. And I don't see a reason why that graph is going to is going to stop being as exponential as it is. You know, going from 0.0001% to five years later being at one percent. You know, five years after that, does that mean we're at 10, 15, 40 percent? 
it's I, I'm pretty optimistic. I don't know. Could be wrong. Could be wrong. I mean, yeah. I don't. I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want to be in a big oil boardroom right now. So before we, this is. It feels like it's kind of winding down. I think we're probably reaching the end of our. But I would be remiss if I didn't if I didn't bring in the last two most catastrophic climate change arguments, right? Which are. Uh, which are the uh, the methane gun uh, stuff? Yeah, the so, methane gun. Yeah, you're, you're, are you a believer in that? I've I've heard it. I've not. I've, could you run through it again? I'm not. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, so there are two large reserves of methane on the Earth that may or may not be in danger of entering the atmosphere. So if anybody doesn't know, methane is also a greenhouse gas that is much more effective than carbon dioxide at being a greenhouse gas. And there are two huge supplies of methane that are in the ground that may come out of it. And one is in the permafrost up in the Arctic North. And I think you, maybe even we talked about it, but the seed vault up in Sweden that was that was supposed to be perfectly safe for all time. And it's built into the permafrost flooded pretty recently because the permafrost melted in the summer. So what the permafrost basically is, is it's like a big frozen swamp. And when it unfreezes, it keeps doing what a swamp does, which is it rots and it releases swamp gas, which is methane. So there's millions and millions and millions of tons of this gas that is worse than CO2 up in the Arctic. And we're seeing year by year that more and more of it thaws. And if you got year-long thaws up in the Arctic, this methane would start pouring into the atmosphere at incredible rates. Yeah, so that would be pretty terrifying. And then the other supply of methane is this stuff called methane clathrates, which is methane that has become ice under the seafloor because of the cold and the great pressure. And so this this one's a little bit less likely because it takes a very long time for heat to go from the top of the ocean to the bottom. And it looks like methane that gets into the water may not actually even be able to bubble up because of these complex ocean processes and currents. So that's maybe a little bit less scary. But the stuff up in the Arctic, that's like a real threat because we're already seeing it melt. So theoretically, you could have that stuff melt, accelerate stuff for five, 10 years, and then the, the stuff at the bottom, and then we all... Uh-huh. And the idea is that even if we stopped all carbon production in, in, in the world, and even if we started learning how to pull it out of the air, we'd be totally boned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that doesn't sound like much fun. No. But as long as doing a show about the end of the world, we might at least get to one end of the world scenario, and the release of all the methane in the Arctic is 100% an end of the world scenario. Yeah, like so what 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 like how hot is it supposed to be? Just like all our cities flood or we start boiling alive? Well, so we're looking at like you know, optimistic projections from the International Energy Agency are like four degrees centigrade. You know, if if things kinda go your way, that is that we reduce carbon emissions by like sixty percent by twenty fifty, we're looking at maybe four percent by the or four degrees centigrade by the end of the century, which which that's doesn't sound bad, but it's actually already a pseudo apocalyptic scenario. That's two degrees centigrade is bad, but not that bad. Four degrees is pretty bad so that's um, a, that, that's if the methane guns go off no that's that's if we reduce carbon emissions by 60 percent by the mid-century and and nothing goes off uh if the arctic goes off uh i think we're looking at like like 15 degrees or more of warming on something totally insane and, a, and an entirely different earth yeah so that's that's a real doomsday scenario and not not in the sense of like oh you know people in silicon valley could survive in bunkers but like like everybody's dead um what? 15 degrees, we just all moved to Michigan. It'd be fun. <laughs> well, you did You did have those congressmen, what, up in North Dakota talking about how they'd have a longer growing season if the global warming thing is real? Yeah. That's uh, that's big in Russia as well. They get to yeah, look at the upsides. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. I think we've had fun uh, discussing the uh, the end of the world. I don't think it's happening anytime soon. I don't expect, I don't expect civil war. I don't expect collapse. I do worry about war. I think that that's... I think that's the main concern. And I don't think it's happening in five years. I don't think it's happening in 10 years. 
but I think it's very possible in 50 years. And that, that's, my, that's my bet for how the world ends. I think we'll probably handle climate change. I think we'll manage to avoid a civil war that, that, that ends the world. But it's interstate war that still, still bugs me. And uh, like I said, not this year, not five years, not 10 years from now, but 50 years from now, I think that's quite possible. That's my bet for how the world ends. Um, are there any more questions from the, uh, from the live chat? Uh, I thought it was at Zach Osborne, I think, brought up an interesting question. Like, okay, so if the Middle East calms down, which actually, I, you know, I do see some possibility of that coming years. It's certainly not being quite as nasty as the past few years in Syria have been. I think it's possible. I don't think it's likely. I'm like, where's the next hotspot? Where's the next potential thing? And I think that gets at something is that the U.S. government has an interest in there being a hotspot. You know, we like to use, you, I was listening to a bit of a podcast you just did on the U.S. military. Like, we like, we like using this hammer we have. And I got to say, actually, I, I wouldn't have said this before watching the tail end of Trump's speech, but next possible hotspot, Venezuela. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know, man. I mean, with, with Donald Trump in power, you know, any, anything is possible, right? I mean, you and I both know on the merits, there's nothing to be gained by anybody in us doing anything to Venezuela. There's nothing to be gained by us even talking about Venezuela. Yeah, that um, sounds hard. Donald Trump putting troops on the ground there. Ugh, God. But if you look at, at history, for all of U.S. history from the... And this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the world. You look at all of U.S. history from what, 18, when, when did most of the countries south of the border get independence, sort of the 18-teens or so? Yeah, right about that. Yeah, like, so from the 18-teens until the 1980s, the United States, well, 18-teens until, until World War II, the United States was heavily, heavily physically involved in almost, I think probably at some point, almost every country yeah. uh, south of the border, physically, like troops on the ground. And from World War II until the 80s, up until the end of the Cold War, we had all manner of unsavory assets, relationships, and occasionally outright invasions with Panama and probably a few others, right? Between the Dominican Republic, we were training all of their terror squads at the School of the Americas. We have CIA men in every torture room in Latin America for a few decades. If you guys want to hear anything about that, check out my show, the first series on Guatemala. It is very depressing. Yes. So, but, 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 but we're not, we haven't been there for quite some time. And I think that's fantastic. And I would love it if that was a permanent thing. But I got to say, man, listening to that last bit with Trump talking. And yes, I think we were now at a point where we can generally ignore a lot of what Trump says, because it turns out he's quite ineffectual. But we can't ignore all of it. And uh, I don't know, that did make me get a little, little worried about Venezuela. I mean, is, is that his vision of making America great again? torture rooms and military occupations. I don't know. Hopefully not. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm looking at this right now. I'm looking at Trump's speech, which Vox just put up the transcript. You know, we've got stuff like, we have also imposed tough calibrated sanctions on the socialist Maduro regime in Venezuela, which has brought a once thriving nation to the brink of total collapse. And he goes on to mention that uh, another eight times. But, you know, the thing I see coming out of Venezuela, the most likely thing is not any U.S. military involvement. What I see is us trying to create, in effect, another Cuba, you know, another isolated state with the sanctions regime on all sides. And the difference there is that, you know, 
Inasmuch as we all might disagree about how well the socialist project succeeded in Cuba, to a certain extent it succeeded. People were educated, they had housing, and they weren't starving to death. And if we succeed in isolating Venezuela like we did Cuba, that will not be the case. You know, the Maduro regime, the Chavez regime didn't do as well for Venezuela as Fidel did for Cuba. And it would be ugly. You know, we would be creating a human tragedy. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's something that I, I just... Oh, the classic. I, it, I get very sick of the the sort of, oh, look at what Venezuela happened. And it was, it was pretty atrocious because Trump did incorporate that classic, like, socialism is evil. And I'm just sort of like picturing every European listening there just being like, God, this fucking guy. And that, that, that sort of thing, it does bother me. But just this, this, this idea that we need to punish a country of, okay, how many people live in Venezuela? Not, not as many as would matter. Yeah, I know, but the idea that we have to punish this country of millions of people for the sins of some dead guy. And that's very much the sense that I get from stuff on the right. And the other thing is, like, you know, at least, like I said, North Korea is not a threat. It hasn't been a threat since the 1950s, and it won't be a threat to the United States ever. But at least they've got a bomb and missiles. What in the hell are we seeing from Venezuela that warrants mentioning them in our president's first UN address? Like, what are they doing to us that's hurting so badly? Yeah, you know, for all that Trump loves to claim that he's outside of the tradition or, or something new and different, it's very similar. You know, it's like every any potential hook for us to get involved and screw with people is something we're interested in. And I'm not saying, I mean, there is absolutely a role for the international community to play in sorting out the mess in Venezuela. But this idea that they should get a starring role in belligerent speeches from the, the U.S. president is pretty, pretty batshit crazy. It's nuts. It's nuts. And it, and it helps Maduro out than it, more than it hurts him. So that's, exactly. you know. It's all nuts. All right. It's all nuts. Uh, we're about to hit an hour 40 here. I'm not yeah. sure that I see anything else in the chat. What do you think? I, I think we've got our final note is Dan Cormier with a whole bunch of beer pitchers. So uh, I think we'll, we'll perhaps leave it there. My name is Robert Morris. I run the More Freedom Foundation, a YouTube channel. Uh, you've been listening to live programming on this channel. Every Tuesday, I put together sort of more carefully produced, generally more carefully produced content involving history and politics. Currently doing a series on Yemen's disaster. I have been uh, lucky enough to be joined uh, in this conversation by John Coombs. I'm John Coombs. I run a podcast called Safe for Democracy. If you Google that, or even better, you look into the description of this show, you'll find the link. I talk about the disasters of U.S. foreign policy and the stuff that we've done wrong to the world. I've done Guatemala, Iran, and the next series is Vietnam, and it's going to kick the crap out of Ken Burns' documentary. So check that out. <laughs> uh, and I'd also like to point out that both of us operate uh, Patreons. Uh, Patreon is kind of a ongoing Kickstarter. It supports us. And I think, John, you're on a monthly basis. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And I uh, support individual videos. I only charge, despite the fact that I do five to ten videos, I only charge for you know, five to seven a, a month. I charge for carefully produced content, which is not what this is as much fun as it is. But Patreon makes a tremendous difference. Both John and I do not live in the United States. Neither, sorry, neither John nor I live in the United States. Uh, we live in places where uh, Patreon makes a lot of difference. Even the, the small amounts of money that we receive allow us to spend more time on these projects of ours. So if you think this sort of thing is worthwhile, I'd uh, encourage you to give either of our Patreons a look. You can get there from my YouTube channel front page from my website, and uh, you can also get to John's from John's website. Absolutely right. Anything else? Anything else there, John? Just to reiterate what Rob said, 
so Rob doesn't drink anymore, but the bar down the street from my house has uh, 33 cent draft beers on Tuesdays, which is today. So yeah, every little bit helps on Patreon for sure. Yeah. Thank you all for listening for this. And thank you, John, for coming on. The world is not going to end anytime soon. And I see it in 20 years. 20 years. Wow. <laughs> all right. Otherwise, I'm going to have to buy you a case of uh, fermented yak's milk or whatever we've got left. All right, man, let's wrap this thing up. All right, man. Thanks to all, and thanks to John, and uh, have a good day. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.